0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute, and welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we explore important new books and ideas in business. Today I'm delighted to welcome Nathan and Susanna Harmon-Furr. Nathan is an Associate Professor of Strategy at INSEAD, where he teaches about innovation, strategy, and technology. Susanna is a designer, art historian, and an entrepreneur, founded a successful women's clothing line. The latest book is The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide to Finding Possibility in the Unknown, which was published by Harvard Business Press in July of this year. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So welcome to the show, Susanna and Nathan, and congratulations on the book. Thank Thank you. you. So I guess it will be self apparent to people that we're living indeed in uncertain times with uh, COVID and Ukraine and uh, the possibility of recession, inflation and all sorts of other things. Is that the main motivation of writing your book, the topicality of change and uncertainty, or is, is the timing a coincidence? Are you addressing a perennial human dilemma of facing uncertainty and change?
1: Yeah, I think we're trying to go a little deeper than the current circumstances. This is a project that started you know, over a decade before the pandemic, and it's really about a more fundamental need, which is, we face uncertainty in our lives. We always have faced uncertainty, but few of us are taught how to deal with that. And when we don't have tools to do it, we often fall into maladaptive traps. And for me, the real interest in this topic has emerged over several decades. For the last 20, 25 years, I've been interviewing innovators. And one of the things that you know, really struck my curiosity is that for them to do anything new, any innovation, any new business, any social change, they always first had to face uncertainty. And I personally struggle with that. I wouldn't say I'm great at it. So I was very curious. Oh, I wonder if I could learn from them how I could do it better in my own life. Whereas I think Susanna, she's an entrepreneur. I kind of feel like she's in that category of doing it more naturally. So that was why it was a good team to do this together. But it really is about this deeper need. We face uncertainty in our lives. And if we want to do anything new, we're going to have to go through the unknown So what are the tools to help us do that better?
0: It's very fashionable right now to have books on uncertainty. And to be honest, I picked it up with the expectation that it was another book about change and uncertainty. But you wrote it clearly for a business audience, it seems to me, but from an individual, primarily an individual angle. So that was interesting. Why did you take the personal angle rather than the institution angle primarily
2: for the book? Yeah, so I I feel like that was kind of one of my main offerings to, to the collaboration because Again, uncertainty has been here forever. And in fact, when we did start thinking about these tools, it was pre-COVID. It was not on the radar at all. And so we were talking about uncertainty in that way of kind of like an entrepreneur or someone who wants to create something cool and new. And it was that kind of vibe that we were going for. But when COVID hit, it was really going to be more about, oh my gosh, we need to address the uncertainty that happens to us, the uncertainty that we don't want, that we wouldn't choose. And Nathan was really wanting it to be this, it's got to be this managerial book, and we're going to talk to these managers and teams. And I said, whoa, the COVID aspect was really my way in to, to convince him that we needed to talk to the individual inside the manager. So the person, because this kind of uncertainty, and really all of it, even the ones we want to go after, they hit us as a really scary situation. We, we often don't try for uncertain things because we're wired to fear the unknown. It's an evolutionary thing. And so when we are dealing with any uncertainty, that that we choose or that happens to us, we really do need tools that can calm us, that can reframe it for us, that can help us go at it with a viewpoint, a mindset that will help us be able to stick in the game when it gets really scary.
0: So let's explore that individual angle first. But before we do so, I just wanted to ask you about this sort of topical angle because, you know, in the preface to your book, you you point out a lot of other people do that we're living in very uncertain times, and you know, I sometimes wonder about that. It's, it's more or less a convention of business books that the opening chapter says, you know, we live in more uncertain and fast-moving and more complex times than ever before. You know, here's, here's the answer. But in some ways, uh, pandemics, wars, you know, stock market crashes are not new. They're perennial. Is is there any? There's certainly sort of topicality in the topic here, but is, is there anything fundamentally new? Is there real news value in uncertainty? Is there anything sort of unprecedented going on, do you think?
1: You make a great point. I would agree with everything you said, but I would highlight two things that are maybe different. Number one, in terms of drivers of uncertainty, it's clear we've had wars, we've had pandemics, we've had all these things, but there are some drivers, I would even say drivers of positive uncertainty in this sense, that technology has fundamentally lowered the barriers to create interact and transact, which means it's easier than ever to create something new, to participate in a conversation, to be connected. And that offers more opportunities, which means more people can start businesses, more people can do new things. And so it's actually more opportunity. It can look like uncertainty because there's more startups and more churn for big companies and more threats. So so to me, one of the, the newer things is drivers. Is this driver which is technology? I could add to that, say education and connection and all that. So I do think there's there are some shifts.
0: Yeah, I think I think I'd agree. There's a there's a difference in what's causing the uncertainty. That's that's true. Yeah. So you've got this nice look like a Nintendo controller to me, a, a little cross, which is your framework essentially, your first aid cross, I think you call it. And um you have four dimensions as it were, or four things, four jobs to be done. Reframe, prime, do, and sustain let's walk through those a little bit. So we start with reframe. And that seems to be about seeing uncertainty, not so much as just something to be controlled and suppressed, but seeing possibility and uncertainty. And so am I right? And tell us what reframing is all about.
2: Yeah, reframing is really, I always think of it as the most critical, you know, go back to that always, because it's that moment when you, instead of seeing it as threat and loss and, and not worth trying for, it's the moment when you can really remember that, uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin. But all of these beautiful things we celebrate in the world that have been evolutions and transformations, they came only after uncertainty. So reframing tools remind us, help us help us get the bigger picture, even reframe it so that we we see all of our options. Yeah.
1: And I would say, I mean, the big dilemma for us as human beings is we've been wired by evolution to be afraid of uncertainty. It registers as anxiety. And what we know about this idea of reframing, it's a very kind of well-proven phenomenon that the way we describe something or frame it shapes how we think about, decide, and act. So again, going back to Kahneman and Tversky, Nobel Prize winning research showing that if you give people two treatments for a disease, one with a 5% chance of failure, one a 95% chance of success, I'm oversimplifying the experiment, but what happens... Everybody wants 95% chance of success, even though they're statistically identical, because we are wired to be afraid of loss. We're loss averse and we want gains. We're gain seeking. So here's the trick with uncertainty. Again, I said, this came out of observing that every innovator had to go through uncertainty to get to possibility. So if we can frame what's happening to us or the uncertainty we're stepping into in terms of the possibility rather than the potential loss that it registers as, we will approach it with greater calm, greater resilience, greater courage. And really, you know, that arm of the first aid cross that you highlighted, the Nintendo controller, has multiple tools within it to try to get really concrete at helping people do that. So rather than just saying, oh, reframe it, that's really nice. Let's like get super concrete about the ways that we saw innovators and creators do that.
0: Well, and you give quite a lot of them, but let's just maybe give a taste for some of the things that one can do. For instance, I was curious about your concept of reverse insurance and about something you call the possibility quotient. Tell us about a couple of the the tools, the things that you can do to help you to reframe.
2: Yeah. So reverse insurance is a really just, it basically clearly states that even though we try to manage our lives, we love certainty. We try to set everything up and follow the guidelines that our parents have set down about where we should go to school and who we marry and all these things, when the perfect time is to have kids or buy our first house. In sum, when we do all that stuff, we end up kind of creating boring lives for ourselves. And the idea is that reverse insurance is what a gambling organization basically said they call their offering, which is for people who have created these lives where they don't really see any options, they're kind of down and out, maybe burnt out and bored. They actually are willing to pay money for the hopes that something new could be injected into their lives. And so we do human beings, we are wired to fear loss, but we need surprise. We need change. We need things to be possible to get more thrilling and more awesome. So when we remember that the possibility quotient factor is just How likely is it that you are going to have good uncertainty happen to you? And we need to put ourselves in positions where that possibility quotient for ourselves is increasing. So we talk about getting on the frontiers. There are all these different ways in which we might be living far back from what our potential is. And that could be social, physical, financial, career, anywhere where we are just kind of going through the ropes in our daily lives. We need to see, hey, where should I be adding some excitement, some challenge And then your possibility quotient goes up. It could be just starting to talk to new people, could be eating in a new restaurant, could be having conversations that you feel maybe you're not ready for. But if you were more vulnerable, where could that take you in a relationship?
0: I thought also interesting was you underlining that facing uncertainty should be about regret minimization rather than risk minimization. Tell us about that idea.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, many times in big companies or even in our lives, we focus so much on minimizing risks. But when you look at innovators, what you see is they use a different process to make these big decisions about, do I try? Do I go for something? Should I do something new? And that is this regret minimization framework. And maybe the most colorful example of that is, you know, an interview we did ages ago with Jeff Bezos before Amazon had really exploded when he was talking about this decision to start this new company back in the mid-1990s when the internet was a super sketchy place, He had a great job on Wall Street working at D.E. Shaw, and he actually told his boss about the idea. And the boss's conclusion was, maybe it's a good idea, but probably a better idea for somebody who doesn't already have a really good job. Why don't you think about it? And Jeff Bezos talked about how he tried to think about how do I make a decision like that? And the framework he used, which many others we studied used as well, was, well, I want to project myself to age 80 and ask, what will I regret? And he was very clear, I won't regret trying and failing. But the one thing I would regret is never having tried. And that's a powerful way to think about that decision about stepping to the unknown. Because if all you do is minimize your risks, you'll never try, you'll never do anything new. And, and that's why one of my bitter points, because I get to teach executives and big companies all the time, They're always claiming they all want innovation and then they want to take zero risk. And I'm like, friends, if innovation was available at zero risk, everybody else would have grabbed it already. You're going to have to engage in some risk at a personal level if you want something new.
0: Very good. So let's, let's move on in the interest of time to the second axis, the prime axis, which I interpreted as some sort of preparation for application to some personal project or something. And so what's priming all about and what are some of the tools and approaches to approach that step?
2: So priming is, like you said, it's about preparing, but really it can be priming or preparing for anything. So personal projects, yes, but also as a company, and maybe the most important tool that we always usually share is the knowing your risk tool, because this is about where you really try to focus on becoming more aware. So if it's a person, you're becoming aware of where are the risks that I, you know, naturally do and and don't have a problem with, and what are the things that are holding me back? So all of us as individuals and companies, We have natural affinities for risk that we don't even maybe see as even risky anymore because we just feel so comfortable there. And then we have zones of aversion where we just really hold back. And that's something that can really help you as you're going to face uncertainty, just knowing where do I get stuck? What things, you know, tend to trip me up so that I don't necessarily do, you know, again, get on that frontier. We're not meant to love all risks. It can be really helpful. Like Nathan, I have a totally different profile. Sometimes we overlap. But in doing things as a company, if you know that about yourself, you're going to be more primed. You're going to be ready for facing uncertainty when you know this person on our team is really good in this category. So that's one tool. But I think priming is really a mix of becoming self-aware about how you deal with uncertainty and then also setting yourself up so that when you are in that action phase, that you are more likely to keep going in the right direction. So we talk about things like uncertainty balancers. Yeah, can I tell
1: about that one? So yeah, it's actually, it's one of the fun ones because when you talk to innovators, they will say some pretty inflammatory things. They'll say things like, I love uncertainty or I eat uncertainty for breakfast. And you can walk away feeling a little intimidated. That's not me, you know. But when we really drilled down in the interviews, it was shocking what we saw on the backstage of their lives, which was. While they did take some big risks or step into the unknown to do new things, they did some things to create remarkable certainty in other areas of their life. So for example, Paul Smith, a very colorful designer, he would stay in the same room of the same hotel whenever he traveled. Other people will take their breakfast with them when they travel. So they have it. They'll wear the same clothes. They'll marry their junior high sweetheart and have friends from junior high to create these islands of certainty, what we'll call uncertainty balancers that allow them to take, to step into or tolerate the unknown in other aspects of their lives. And so, you know, again, in terms of preparing, one of the great ways to prepare, or let's say right now you're feeling like, oh, I just have so much uncertainty in my life. These folks are crazy. What are they talking about? I would say, look at your uncertainty balancers, your habits, your routines, your rituals, your relationships, your communities. And we could go on, you know, even the use of humor can be an uncertainty balancer. That helps you because nobody has an infinite capacity for uncertainty, and so it's really about creating that balance.
0: Very good. I must ask you about one more thing here because I think you consolidate nicely the the well known aspects of risks into a sort of interesting synthetic framework. But also, there are some new thoughts. You talk about this highly technical tool called Dumbo feathers. Could you tell us about uh, about that one? <laughs>
2: I love that. Um, oh, this is very
0: technical. Yeah. This,
2: this is something I was like, can we do this, please? Okay, so Dumbo Feathers, for those who haven't seen the the film, it's a cartoon elephant who has such big ears that he can fly, but he doesn't know about this until his little kind of magic guide, this little bird, says, oh, you need this feather. And so he gets this feather in his little trunk, and then when he has the feather, he can fly, and ultimately, later, you find he didn't ever need the feather. But it was the thing that enabled him to do this thing that was kind of magic. And, and the same thing goes for people and teams. There are things that inspire us, encourage us, make us see the vision beyond where we're at that we often can think we need and we end up not needing it. But it sure is helpful to have some of those. And we talked very clearly about it. this could be a person. It could even be someone you don't know. It could be an ancestor. It could be a poet. It could be a hero. It could also be an experience you had in your past that you cling to where you're able to hold on to this vision. And again, it's a prime tool because it's like you're kind of stocking up for going into this uncertain space.
0: Right. So if the other thing is an innovation balancer, this is more like an innovation crutch or an innovation catalyst or something like that.
2: Yeah,
1: I see the balancer is kind of tolerating uncertainty, whereas this the Dumbo Feather helps you aspire. Right. It helps you reach further. And the quest destroyers, by the way, you want to avoid because they're the ones who kind of pull you down and hold you back.
0: So let's go on to the, the stage three do. So, this is where you take action and embrace risk and possibility. And there's a, there's a lot of things here, but let's just pick a few. You talk about unlocks rather than controlling. You talk about learning in the fog. You talk about bricolage. Tell us about some of the tactics in putting these ideas into action.
2: Well, I would love to touch on the activating and unlocking because really, Nathan should discuss his dissertation research on the the cognitive flexibility and learning through fog. But just the idea of managing uncertainty actually doesn't really work. And that's often how it's written about management science works for conditions of certainty. But the minute you're in an unknown situation where you don't even know what's coming towards you, when we focus instead of controlling it and forcing what we want to have happen, something really interesting occurs. And- basically the idea for those words activating and unlocking came from a gentleman who was a Brazilian landscape architect and he was studying in Berlin in the 50s at the Bauhaus and he he went to a horticulture exhibit and saw plants these glorious plants from his native Brazil but kind of squeezed into these cement planters you can imagine a Bauhaus style with that concrete planter box and he had this epiphany himself and he he went on to create beautiful things like the Copacabana boardwalk with undulating lines but the idea was what if inherently there's beauty inside anything we're tackling. So uncertainty we want, even uncertainty that's getting thrown at us sideways, there's something, an essence inside of that thing. And if we can be even thoughtful, maybe expecting that there could be some genius already there and that what can we bring to kind of unlock the best outcome, the best way forward, it takes a lot of courage actually to think that there could be something there that's pretty abstract but there's billions of examples of this. You know, composers do this, like Max Richter, who took Vivaldi's these four seasons and he, instead of thinking that's untouchable and that's been done, he took that opening line and created a new thing that he's called recomposed. And his point was, even the most glorious things that we hold as brilliant and shouldn't be messed with, there's so much potential in even the things we love to do it a little bit differently and to do it with our spin. So I think leaders really, Can take courage that what can I do with this thorny, complicated thing I'm facing, and it's always going to be interesting if you don't force because that's where you can get into trouble.
0: Interesting, right? And Nathan, you had some thoughts on learning in the fog.
1: Yeah, yeah. So again, I just want to highlight in that first aid cross for uncertainty we've been talking about: reframe, prime, do, and sustain. Those are the four arms. The prime and do are a little bit more action oriented. It may not seem that way when we talk about activate and unlock, but it is. But just to give you, I would say the Do arm really draws a lot more on this research from the field of innovation and entrepreneurship. So learning through fog, what does that mean? When you're under uncertainty, it's analogous to being in the fog. And there's a landscape out there full of hills and mountains and valleys. And where, how do you discover where the hills and the valleys and the mountains are? You need to find some tools to help you learn quickly what's really going on. And we actually draw lessons from research on, for example, startup accelerators and successful entrepreneurs. So for example, in this research that some of my colleagues did on startup accelerators, what is a startup accelerator? By the way, it's where you take a class of entrepreneurs in for about three months and you try to get them on their way to creating a successful new business. And it's actually not obvious from the start how to make a great startup accelerator. So for example, should you have your entrepreneurs who come in, should you have them talk to as many people as once as fast as possible, or should you spread those interactions out over three months so they have more time to absorb it? And should you make everybody follow the same program, talk to the same types of people, or should you customize it to the nature of their business? And since many of them might be working on similar things, should you allow them to kind of keep what they're working on secret, or should you make them talk to each other? Thus, not, not obvious, right? But the research reveals that actually the biggest trap that these entrepreneurs fall into, and by the way, we fall into when we go into uncertainty, is that we think that the way we're doing things is right. And the, the medicine for that, that we learn from these startup accelerators is it's better to talk to as many people as fast as possible. So for example, in a great startup accelerator, they'll make you talk to 75, 80 people, 100 people in the first month. And what that does is just shakes you out of your reality and it lets you learn really quickly. Oh, and by the way, it's better to also share with as many people as possible. So they make these startup founders share with each other and they discover, oh, we're working on similar problems. We could learn from each other and to talk to as many people, different people. So don't customize. Talk to people you don't think might be able to help you because a lot of times they end up being able to help you in some shocking ways. And so learning through fog is really about how do we learn as quickly as possible? And and again, the takeaways that would be, talk to as many people as you can, talk to people who are different from you, talk to people who are doing similar things as you. And there's also no one right way to do that. So my advisor at Stanford did an interesting study. It was a match pair study of you know, startups in the consumer drone industry, creating the little you know, drones that fly and, and take images. And what they found in that study is there was, for every problem they faced, there was a different way to solve that problem. That there's not kind of one right way that you kind of got to be agile and change up how you learn along the way.
0: There you go. that makes a lot of sense. So let's keep moving. I'd like to spend more time on do, but we, we must touch on the final step too, which is sustain, which seems to be going from, I interpreted it as going from one-shot efforts to habits or making something a continuous attitude towards uncertainty. Tell us what that step is all about and what are some of the concrete things one can do in the sustain mode.
2: Yeah. I really like how you said that. It is this phase of of sustaining yourself. And we like to talk about like prime and do are these active phases. It's very similar, the reframe and sustain. They're more of a cognitive axis. So it is this coming back to why did I take this on or why am I doing this thing? Really going back to this reframing moment of seeing the possibility, but sustain is it can be just the thing that we need to arm ourselves with for when it doesn't go right, because in uncertainty, often things go wrong. It goes differently than we think. And so there's, there's three parts to sustain. And we did that because there's so many tools and we wanted, we know that in that moment of needing sustaining of our efforts, we forget. And so it's emotional hygiene, reality check, and magic. And emotional hygiene is just like it sounds. It's being able to take the time it needs to just be aware of how it feels to fail or to feel like something isn't going to work and there are several tools for how to do that well reality check is about taking a really good close look and and kind of you know a lot of times we just have this worst case scenario hovering in the background but we don't really sit down and write down okay what's happening how much money do i have in the bank what is expected of me who's going where and you kind of look at it and it's helpful to really see what is happening we did that a lot during the pandemic when Nathan's whole income kind of dried up in four days or something when everything got canceled. And then the magic phase, I'd love for Nathan to talk about it because it's...
1: Oh, yeah, it's really about, I mean, it sounds, it was a little heretical to write the word magic from a business school professor, but it's really about the moments of insight, the chance meeting, the, the serendipity that can, can really come along and change your course. And you can't control it, but you can create the circumstances where it can happen more often to you. I had to live this tool in a lot of ways at different points in my life. And, and you know, one of the, my favorites is, is the as-if tool. Christopher Hitchens, who was a contemporary philosopher, wrote about this as a means of kind of political opposition. You know, he wrote, he wrote about Vaclav Havel, who was in the Czech Republic when it was invaded and, and overtaken by a dictator. And he realized we can't resist in the way that we, we once could. And, and he wrote a book called The Power of the Powerless, in which he proposed living as-if one were a member of a free republic, and to maintain that difficult pose for that entire period. And, and by the way, he did go on and become the first president, elected president of the Czech Republic. But that tool actually has some deep philosophical origins and can very much apply in our own lives. And, and, and I have many stories of applying that. In fact, one of my favorites is you know, when I graduated from Stanford, I, I went and took a job at a, a nice university that we enjoyed, and but we came to France as a visiting professorship, and we just fell in love with it. And at the time, though, I didn't see any pathway back. You know, so we wanted to be in Europe, we wanted to be in France, and I remember visiting this little town Fontainebleau. There's this beautiful chateau, and it's and it has the business school INSEAD in it, and you know, academics is a very snooty business. Once you step down from the top, you don't step back up. And so I was there, it was a foggy November. And I remember feeling really bad about myself because I'm like, here I am in the town where NCAD is. They don't know I exist. They'll never know I exist. And Susanna really challenged me on that. And we went home from that visiting professorship and I resolved to live as if I was the quality of academic that NCAD would hire. And I had to maintain that post for a long time. I mean, I remember one of the senior leaders, you know, meeting him at a conference, telling him about my research record and him being basically like, no, not good enough. But I kept working and living as if I could do that quality of research. And you know, fast forward 10 years later, not only am I hired, but I'm a tenured research professor and, and it came to be. And that sounds, it can sound kind of wishy-washy, but it has deep origins. And so this sustain is about bringing yourself through those dark moments.
0: I mean, one characteristic of everything we've discussed, I think, is fundamentally you're you seem to be saying, you know, do the things that we're not wired to do. And I guess that's almost difficult, you know, by definition. And I guess the, you know, one challenge is that the knowledge that comes from reading a book may not be sufficient behaviorally to actually go against one's instincts. So, you know, assuming that there's some value in, in the knowledge that comes from reading a book, how do you go up against the more challenging problem of Going against hardwired evolutionary instincts—is that—is that that really possible? And what are the what are the unlocks to that component?
2: Yeah, in the do section, we talk about doing things in small steps, and how that's a tool for you know we don't have to do the huge leaps of faith. You can start with such a small thing. But I really love the way we wrote the book has these personal reflection exercises at the end of each tool, and we really need for people to get into the question for themselves and apply it to their career situation if they want to, because when we really start internalizing it and trying it in these small steps ways, we really can see the validity of it. That's one thing we talk about transilience, which is this light switch effect of shifting from one state to another. You know, you think of water boiling and turning into steam. Human beings can have that experience. And, and we kind of believe that everyone probably has had an experience where they felt uncapable or unqualified, but kind of got out there and did it. We've also all failed. But we, have you had a moment when you thought, I can't do this thing, and all of a sudden you're doing it? And even if it was kind of awkward or clumsy, you got to the other side and you thought, okay, I could do that differently or better next time. But I did it. And as we endeavor to face uncertainty using these tools, We find it's getting easier and we find we're even looking for things that we never would have looked for two years ago. It gets contagious and it gets exciting. So I do believe.
0: Yeah, I did like that word. I wasn't familiar with it. You didn't call it resilience or change or transilience, sort of self-transformation, auto-transformation through action, through change. Does that capture the spirit of this idea that small steps may enable you to actually do the impossible, which is to the apparently impossible, which is to incrementally actually change your behavior and your habits? Is, is that the idea of resilience?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I wanted to. I mean, obviously, we've studied resilience and we've reviewed the research on that, but resilience is a little bit more being able to take a punch and stay standing. Whereas my hope for myself, frankly, in writing this book is to be able to experience uncertainty and say. How do I see the possibility on this? How do I make that phase shift leap? And the more practice you have with that, the more comfortable it becomes. In fact, the weird thing about us, again, I said, I struggle with uncertainty, but I've gotten to the point where I actually kind of crave it. And I think that's what the innovators and and entrepreneurs that we studied learned that many of us all learn, by the way, at the end of our lives, at the end of people's lives, when you ask them their great regrets, it's, it's that they didn't spend more time with the people they cared about and as they didn't take more risks. And frankly, the entrepreneurs we talk to, whether they learn, they learn that there's value in stepping into the unknown. It doesn't work out every time, but they just get access to so much more as a result. And that's where we get, we have these conversations that say, how do we push it? How do we step into the unknown more? Because we've gotten addicted now to that possibility on the other side.
0: So we're talking primarily about individuals and you're both no strangers to business as, a, as an entrepreneur and a, a business professor. You know, Clearly, there's a direct correspondence. We could be talking about corporate persons as well as individual persons. Everything you said about facing unknowns and embracing uncertainty and possibility could also be said of corporations. But rather going through that analogy, let, let me ask a sort of narrow question, which is, is there a difference between a corporate person and an individual in dealing with these issues of embracing uncertainty as possibility? Are there any parallels that? At an individual level might work, but wouldn't work. You'd have to do something different at a corporate level.
1: Maybe I could start with some similarities. One thing is, again, we wrote this to individuals, even though it is also for managers, leaders, because you need to address it at an individual level first. In fact, there's research that shows that the the kind of emotional state of top leaders trickles down through the organization. And, And a great illustration of this reframing at an organizational level would be, for example, take the pandemic. I was able to observe leaders who framed the pandemic as the worst thing that's ever happened to us, worse than the Great Depression. How do you think people felt after that? Compare that to how Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, in one of the most hard hit industries during the pandemic, how did he frame it? Did he say this is worse than the Great Depression? No, he said, this is our moment. Great companies are forged in moments of crisis. This is our chance to show our greatness. Now, how do you feel after that? And by the way, that may sound anecdotal, but there's actually empirical research that shows that organizations that frame, say, a disruptive innovation threat as the opportunity are more successful. And and consider, for example, Borders versus Barnes & Noble, both of whom had to respond to the major change in their industry that Amazon created. Why is Barnes & Noble around today? A big part of it is because they framed that uncertainty, not in terms of the loss, the risk, the disruption, but in terms of this is a possibility. This is a new way for us to sell books. It's a new way to interact with customers. By reframing around the possibility, they were able to continue on and be successful in making a very difficult transition. So so I at least see, for example, in reframing, I see very similar parallels.
0: So unfortunately, we're nearly out of time. Let me end maybe with a personal question, which is how you've applied these ideas yourself. So starting with you, Susanna, because you are an entrepreneur. Before you wrote the book, as you look back, were you intuitively already using some of these techniques or having codified them in the book? Do you find that they make you see possibilities you didn't see at the time or help you execute them more systematically?
2: Yes, to both. Yeah, I definitely can execute them more systematically now, but, but definitely small steps and pivots and framing things. When I did my clothing line, we had teeny little kids. Nathan was doing his PhD at Stanford. One thing that was amazing was to be in the Bay area and to feel that camaraderie of, of people just starting things, you know, in garages. I mean, we were living on campus and student housing, so I had that angle on it, but I definitely have felt like since the writing of the book it's become more clear because of having all of this amazing insights from these people that it is possible to see so much more than we ever, ever did before. Maybe that doesn't make sense. It's a little abstract. I guess currently even I am doing something entirely new for me, which is I'm starting a bio-intensive garden and it's led us also to Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is Dan Barber's restaurant. That's linked with the Rockefeller foundation looking for sustainability in food, in agriculture. And I'm so much less afraid now. Self-doubt doesn't get me down. There's a lot of things that I'm dealing in that are just fun. So I think I wouldn't have tried to do this without having, I mean, a year ago, I didn't know I was going to be doing this. And now I'm just excited. And I use these tools on a daily basis to really help me see what's needed, what's next, what's important, what's not. So
0: So we're probably a pale shadow of Susanna Nathan as a a consultant and an academic, but tell me about embracing uncertainty in your line of work.
1: Well, you know, maybe I can tell like a contrary story in the sense of, you know, Susanna was talking about using these tools to you know really courageously step into the unknown. But one of the things that was really hard for me was, again, we'd been working on this for well over a decade before COVID hit. And when COVID hit, suddenly every guru in the world is grounded at home with lots of time, thinking about one thing, uncertainty. So I was really freaking out because I was like, I'm gonna get scooped, I'm gonna get you know, my ideas stolen. And Susanna reminded me, uh, first off, she challenged me. She said, if you can't use these tools to help yourself, I will not let you write this book. And that was good motivation, get some skin in the game. But I think the other thing is one of the tools we talk about is operating according to your values when you're under uncertainty rather than according to goals. Because if you focus on achieving your values, you can succeed no matter what. And, you know, one of my favorite inspirations for this was a great entrepreneur, David Heinemeier Hansen, who did Ruby on Rails and Basecamp. And he says, you know, when I do some new project, it's just about, I focus on writing great software, treating my teams well, and acting ethically in the marketplace. And I know I can achieve that. And even if this project fails, I will succeed because I achieve my value. So Susanna really pushed me on that, that what's your value in writing this? Rather than trying to be some big person who had something new to say about uncertainty, write the very best thing you can, write it in a way that your friends could pick it up and use it. And that really changed my mindset so that I ended up really writing what I would say in a more earnest way, in a more wholehearted way, in a more honest way. And the stress fell off my shoulders because it was like, if, if I just focus on achieving my values, it's okay if 50, 100 other people write a book about uncertainty because we need all the voices we can get.
0: Yeah, I can, I can identify that. So stepping back from the instrumentalism of management and the yes. goal orientation and, and pursuing intrinsic motivation and curiosity and things like that, I, I can see that in my line of work too, I think. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me discussing this new book, The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide to Finding Possibility in the Unknown, which is just out from Harvard Business Press. I'd, I strongly recommend because I think it adds to the now rather voluminous literature on corporate uncertainty by by showing us the individual tactics and the and the self-help and the behaviors of leadership that underpin all of that institutional work. So I, I found it a very my own field of strategy. But as a strategist, I I found it very, very valuable to read the book. So congratulations and and thanks again. Thank Thank you. so you. So if you like the conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We welcome your feedback as always. Thanks again.